Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 154. Today, my wife and I finish up chapter three in our study on Philippians, and we'll be looking at a contrast that Paul makes between enemies of the cross and citizens of heaven. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, go check out my wife's podcast, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie There are amazing testimonies on that podcast that will be sure to encourage you tremendously in your walk with Jesus. Also, for those of y'all who are perhaps new to this podcast, at the end of every episode of Reclaiming the Faith, you'll hear an original song that I've written. And you can stream all of those songs for free on Spotify, or if you have Apple Music, uh, you can find them there. Anywhere you want to purchase digital music, you can find my stuff. So go check those out. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency. So please go check out the Omega Frequency podcast, uh, YouTube channels, and Rumble channels to find all of our content there. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 154. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard, that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following me, my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even even to subject all things to himself. All right, you're going to see some words, some verbiage in this chapter that occurred in previous chapters in Philippians. So we're going to do that a lot as we go through here. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. All right, that word perfect has come about a couple of times before in Philippians, as is this whole attitude mindset thing. So just as a way of reminder, when you see that word perfect, it comes from telos. This word is teleos, um, teleos, and uh, it means to be- like a telescope. That's extended to its furthest point, Yeah. right? To, uh, To help us remember what he means by perfect, we'll go back just a couple of verses. All right, I'm going to put these up on the screen. 
starting in verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So Paul, of course, was talking about uh, knowing the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings and um, knowing the power of his resurrection, right? And so we talked about how they viewed martyrdom, the early Christians viewed martyrdom as becoming perfect in a sense, like you are really fulfilling uh, your ultimate expression of love toward Jesus. And uh, so one could say, Paul has not yet, he's saying, I have not completed that task yet. Um, I haven't gotten to the very end of my goal, like he would say in 2 Timothy when he really believes, uh, and this is a few years down the road, when he really believes that, you know, Nero's right about to kill him. Um, But He's saying, not that I've already obtained it, but I'm going to press on to lay hold of the thing that of uh, that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Therefore, as many of us as are perfect have this attitude. So it's kind of a, a challenging call. If you really want to press on to perfection, you need to have this attitude. Okay. And what is that attitude? Well, he says, let's keep living by the sta- same standard to which we've obtained attained. The attitude that we should have is that of Christ Jesus, right? We've been given the mind of Christ. And you remember Paul saying in chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as, uh, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so this idea of what what does it look like to have the attitude of of, of like a perfect attitude is to take on the mind of Christ, to try to live like Christ lived. You know, as Paul is saying, we got to have that same attitude and we should have that same attitude because he also says in uh, Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be among the first, sorry, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and that those whom he predestined, he also called, those we called, he justified, those we justified, he glorified. So you can see that Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you're if you've been grafted into the vine of Christ, if you've been adopted by him, if he's given his spirit to you, then that purpose of the spirit, one of the main purposes of the spirit is to slowly transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, that starts small like a mustard seed, but it should be changing uh, our attitude, our mindset. Think like fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. So we take on more of the mindset of Christ. And eventually, as you're going to see later in Philippians three, it's not just going to change our mind and our character, but our actual appearance as well like Paul's hitting on here in the glorified aspect. So verse 15 and 16, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, 
Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. This this um, word standard is uh, not in the original Greek, but it's implied by this keep living by the same to which we have attained. This idea of keep living by that same is where we get this word canon, and that's where the NAS is writing standard. It's canon, properly a rod, used as a measuring standard, all right? Originally a cane or reed used as a standard of measure, all right? And so if you keep reading here in Strong's, it says this word was used for a summary of Orthodox Christian doctrine in the early church, the rule of of truth or the rule of faith, all right? So in one sense, this is, uh, you could think about orthodox creed, creedal statements, like Jesus Christ being God of God, light of light, uh, being born of a virgin, suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, buried, raised to life on the third day, uh, giving us the Holy Spirit, that kind of stuff. Uh, those kind of creedal statements, but it's much more than that. Because if you asked an early Christian, like, what is, what does it mean to be a Christian? They're not going to, generally speaking, they're not going to give you a creedal statement like that. They're going to take you to how Jesus lived. Basically, they're going to quote the Sermon on the Mount and show how that's like lived out by Jesus. And one of the reasons, I mean, you see that same type of approach in, uh, the New Testament writers, all right? What is this standard that we're supposed to live by? Here's 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. John writes, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And of course, that word walk is not meaning like literally how he takes steps, matching his gate to your gate, not, not that kind of thing. No, he's talking about the lifestyle, the way he lives, the way he treats people, that stuff. Um, you see the writer of Hebrews picking up on this as well. This is Hebrews chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. It's really interesting, the writer of Hebrews, as he's summing everything up, he's saying, look, look at the true apostles, those, those early apostles, those early uh, pastors and elders who were eyewitnesses, you know, or who were like one step removed or two steps away from being eyewitness. Look at them and look at the way that they lived and then imitate their faith because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Basically, the same Holy Spirit that was 
transforming them to image Jesus, uh, to walk as Jesus walked then, is still doing that now. As Jude would say, it's the faith that was once delivered for all time. Um, they're walking in this. They're imitating that. All right. Hey, Dustin. Uh, good to see you, brother. AJ joined in too. Hey, AJ. Yo, yo, yo. Um, and you can see Paul basically picking up on that theme again in verse 17 of chapter 3 of Philippians. He writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Sounds very similar to that Hebrew stuff, right? Look at your leaders and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Their standard is not Moses. Their standard is Jesus. Jesus. It's not David. It's not Solomon. Great people. It's not Noah. No, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ. All right? So Paul says, follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He says similar kind of stuff in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. You want to read this? <laughs> it's a little bit shorter passage yeah. than the previous one. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And you want to do Ephesians? Yeah. Right. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So what are some things that kind of come to your mind that he may be kind of hitting at, hitting on? What's coming to mind? Yeah. Uh, just this idea that, uh, well, the leaders need to be imitating Christ really well. Otherwise, we're, we're being led by the wrong kind of people. You know, this, I was, I don't know, that's what was kind of coming to mind for me was um, this is a, this is instruction for um, new believers but this is also a caution for those that are leading others and those that are discipling is, are we living a life that others should imitate? Mm. And if we're not, then where are we falling short? And we need to talk to Jesus about that. You know, we need to ask God to, to transform us because if we're leaders, we're held to a higher standard Yeah, for teachers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, our ultimate leader, Jesus, mm -hmm lived this life of humility, yeah. right? Though he's in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited or to be used for his own advantage. So he humbled himself, right? He humbled himself. And you see him, even though um, we were acting as enemies toward him, he demonstrates God's love to us by dying for us. Mm -hmm right? While we're sinners. Yeah. Um, gave himself up for mm -hmm. us. Gave yeah. himself up for us. And that's how we're called to imitate that, to imitate that. And what was the reason for that? To bring us more into, into God's, or to bring us into God's family. Reconcile us. To reconcile us. Absolutely. And in doing that, he's showing us the, um, the true gospel, not the gospel of Rome, not the gospel of Caesar. He's showing us the true gospel 
what the kingdom, not of Rome, looks like, but what the kingdom of heaven looks like and what citizens of the kingdom of heaven are supposed to look like. You remember in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I just want to pause there for a second. If you remember that that uh, passage that we went through several weeks ago, uh, that word conduct means to live as a citizen. That's literally what it means. It's like if you could turn the word citizen into a verb, that's that's what it means. Citizenize. Yeah, you know, live as a citizen who's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is really calling them to take on um, the values of the kingdom of heaven. And you really do see uh, some of those values um, displayed uh, in what he calls them to, to, to do uh, as he's finishing up verse, uh, or sorry, chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter one. So look, he says, only conduct yourselves Citizenize, what'd you say? In a it's manner, not, I don't think it's a real word, but it <laughs> no, should that's be. good. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear that you are one standing in firm in the one spirit. So you're standing firm against this army, right? Uh, and you're together with one mind, striving together, working hard. Why? For the faith of the gospel, not alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And excuse me, and so it's taking, whoa, it's taking them back to to think about what Paul did in Acts chapter 16 with that jailer, if you remember, and um, how he had a Roman citizenship card that he could have used to escape the beating with rods that he and Silas received. and But he did not flash it. He held that back because he's a citizen of the kingdom and God, his king, his master, his Caesar was telling him to wait and be patient. And he takes all of those blows. Why? For the sake of this jailer and his family, right? You can read that whole story in Acts chapter 16, but it's really impressive. He's not scared at all, right? He's um, And he's striving together with Silas for the faith of the gospel. He's not alarmed. And it does become a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for Paul. And that's why that jailer says, what can I do to be saved? Yeah. Tell me how to be saved. God never wastes suffering. Like, I, I think I, I'm reminded of that all the time. Like, he takes the suffering of Paul and he's using it to bring this jailer into the kingdom of heaven. And um, that's awesome. So let's keep going. Brethren, join and follow my example, following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Because for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, Mm. whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. Mm. All right. Now, 
there are many questions and debates about um, who these people are. Are they the Judaizers? Are they Gnostic teachers? Uh, are they professing Christians? Who are they? Um, there is no small disagreement about that. But from the commentaries that I've read, they most likely were professing itinerant uh, preachers of the gospel. So like traveling ministers um, that are not representing the gospel well and who Paul says in the end are going to be shown to not have been, they will not be saved basically in the end. Um, however you want to sort that out, um, they will not be saved. All right. These people that are claiming to be Christians. Paul says these are enemies of the cross of Christ. This enemies, uh, extras, properly an enemy, someone openly hostile, mm. animated by a deep-seated hatred. All right. This is uh, not someone that's um, kind of on the DL. Um, but in God's eyes, he sees them as being openly hostile mm. to the gospel. Though clearly they are, um, as, as you're going to see as we use some other texts, these are people that are, are going to be proclaiming Christ, but they are totally against what he's for. Whose end, Paul says, is destruction. Here's that end word. Paul's saying the Christian's end should be reflecting Jesus, right? Becoming conformed to the image of Jesus um, in all things. Paul is saying that these guys' end will not be glorification, but rather destruction. Apoleia, it means to be cut off, uh, something to be completely severed, cut off from what could or should have been. Think about uh, what Paul's writing in Romans chapter 11 about being cut off. And he talks about how if these uh, unbelieving Jews were cut off because of their unbelief, we should not be haughty and think that that could never happen to us who stand by our faith, right? And we will continue to remain in that vine as long as we don't fall into unbelief, all right? You don't want to be cut off. You can think about John 15 stuff as well. Their end is destruction. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Mm. The broad way, this is and the gate is wide that leads to destruction. I would encourage y'all to read the Didache. It's the earliest Christian document that's uh, not a part of the New Testament. And read the Epistle of Barnabas, also in a potentially first century document. And they both talk about two ways. There's the way of life and the way of death uh, in the Didache. And then you have the way of light and the way of darkness in the Epistle of Barnabas. And basically they both quote the Sermon on the Mount. They're getting it from this, um, this passage right here. And unfortunately, it's not many who take the narrow way that end in life. It's few. 
it's many that end in destruction. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it's sobering when you really think about it. Yeah, Brian, few that make it, that's scary. That's absolutely right, man. It's, um, it's really sobering to think about. Um, and Paul said many, right? Many are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. He uses that same many language. Mm. And he says, their God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. All right, I'm going to hit the God is their appetite one with uh, a passage out of Romans 16, and then we'll combine God is their appetite, glory is in their shame. I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 2 in just a minute. So here's Romans 16. What does it mean that God is their appetite? All right. Um, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I really think Paul and Peter and Jude are hitting on the same things. Paul with this passage in Romans 16 and Philippians 3, and then Peter in 2 Peter 2 and the book of Jude um, are hitting on these same people that we are supposed to watch out for. So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And that sound like James, or sorry, Jude. Um, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now keep going. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into, it's Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. If all of that, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble 
when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the way, They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. That was a lot. What's coming to your mind, Stephanie, as you were listening to that and reading it, in terms of their God is their appetite, their glory is in their shame. What do you think they're glorying in? What is their appetite for? What are they making the significance of their life? I mean, it fleshly desires. Anything that feels good is what they're going after. Um, That last little proverb, the sow after washing returning to returns to wallow in its in the mire. I mean yeah, that's a, that's such a really good picture of you know getting cleaned up basically, you know, experiencing that and then going and returning to what's going to, you know, bring about destruction. The passage is so dramatic with angels falling, brute beasts and springs without water. Yeah. There's so much imagery in here that, um, yeah, it's really, it's, I don't know, I'm struggling for my words right now, but um, it's a pretty interesting passage to think about that there's 
when we're chasing after our, you know, our flesh's desires and what feels good and what this world has to offer, we're missing out on Jesus. And that's not, I mean, when we think about life without Jesus, it's without hope completely. And it's, um, it's complete destruction. And I don't know, I think I've, I've known Jesus for so long that I can't imagine and I can I can barely remember life without Jesus. But that's such a big caution. Yeah. And you're talking about knowing Jesus. Yeah. Verse 21. For me, it's one of the scariest passages in the Bible. And for me, the scariest chapter in the Bible. Yeah. It says, for it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Remember in verse 20, it says, having for if, ha- if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So he's saying they escaped the knowledge or escaped the world. In a sense, they were baptized and brought into God's kingdom. And it kind of seems like that's what Peter's saying too. In verse 22, a sow after washing, then return to wallowing in the mire. But how in the world could it ever be better to, I mean, to have never known Jesus than to know him and then forsake I mean, it's just unbelievable language there. Yeah, um, I, I, I can see the despair that reading this kind of passage could bring about. Um, how would you advise somebody who's just paralyzed by reading something like that? Paralyzed in what way? Like, like for what reason? I have. I'm never going. I mean, you know, like I'm never going to be where I need to be. And I'm always afraid, am I truly saved or was everything, you know, am I walking the way that I need to walk? Yeah. Um, I would, uh, I would encourage them to go to Peter. Okay. Go to Peter's story. Cause at one point in Peter's life, he's feeling very, very overcome, overwhelmed, filled with sorrow, right? Jesus is reaching out to Peter though. And Peter comes back. Yeah. He lets Jesus restore him, you know? And so if you're feeling um, paralyzed by that, stuck, look at Peter's life and read Peter's words. You know, a lot of times uh, we think, no one knows what it's like to go through what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. We can feel very alone and uh, unique in our sin. First Peter chapter five says for us to humble ourselves uh, under the Lord's mighty hand and cast all our all of our anxieties on Him because He cares about you, right? And know that, um, sorry, and resist the devil, standing firm in your faith, uh, because. Um, 
yeah, he goes around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but we can resist him knowing that um, brethren around the world are experiencing the same suffering as you. Yeah. All right. So that's like a powerful thing. One of the ways that you can fight the devil is by refusing to believe the lie that you are unique in your sin. Mm-hmm. You're not there and you're, you're unique in your struggle. You're not. There are Christians all around the world that are going through what you're going through and that have throughout the millennia gone through what you're going through now. And just like the Lord helped Peter and is coming after Peter, knowing exactly what he would do, knowing how he would betray him, um, all that kind of stuff, right? Deny him rather, you know, he, um, he still came after Peter and he's coming after you too. And you got to fight. You have to fight and not be led by your emotions, um, but be led by the Holy Spirit. Because your emotions are going to lie to you. People talk about following your heart. James seven, or sorry, <laughs> Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitfully, desperately wicked, more deceitful than than anything else. You can't in those times follow your heart. Your heart is going to lie to you. Just like if someone's stuck, like in a in a marriage that. Um, just seems like it's dying. If you follow your emotions in those times, you're going to be led astray. Yeah. If you go ahead. I'm no, sorry. I was just going to say, like, I was, you know, I know that that can be a struggle for a lot of people. And I think there that a lot of times comes from a place of sincerity, like really wanting to honor God with their life. I think, however, that, you know, like you said, looking at the example of, Peter, looking at the example of Paul, looking at these people who repented of major sin and God used them and they didn't, they didn't wallow in it. They didn't, they, they pressed into what God was calling them to do. And a lot of them, it emboldened them because they knew what they had been rescued from. And I think that we can, we need to have a right view of our sin, you know, not downplaying it, not saying it's okay because it's normal in my culture, whatever it might be. But we need to totally understand that God calls us to live differently. And we need to be making sure that our lives line up with what he wants for us. But at the end of the day, um, we're still, I kind of hate this phrasing, but like we're a work in progress. Like God is still working on us. That doesn't mean you sit and wait until you have nothing left to work on. You know, there, even the apostles had areas that they were, you know, they weren't perfected completely yet, but they were seeking to honor the Lord and they were spending time in fellowship. And I think that's another big thing. A lot of times we isolate when we feel inadequate, but yeah. So let's keep going. Enemies of the cross. Um, their God is their appetite. Their, their sorry, their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. All right, that uh, that that phrase, earthly things, is actually earthly minding. <laughs> like, it's kind of interesting, but that's earthly minding. That's the Greek for you, and that's why your Bibles will say things like mindset on earthly things because it sounds really weird to say (laughs) earthly minding they are earthly minding yeah um like that's a a verb (laughs) yeah yeah exactly so this this phrase 
uh, gets brought up by Jesus at a very critical moment in his, his ministry. It's in Matthew chapter 16, all right? And he comes to Caesarea Philippi, very important place, right? Where the uh, watchers came down, as you read about in uh, First Enoch, they're on Mount Hermon, uh, the oath, right? Hermon oath, where they all take an oath to come against God. So Jesus there, up right there by the gates of Hades, um, says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. All right, let's jump forward a few verses. Let's go to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. All right, that's the first time that he began to tell them that the Messiah is first going to suffer and be killed. And so how does Peter respond? Peter grabs him. Come here, buddy. No, 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 no. You know, I don't know how you imagine that, but... um, Listen up, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's... Hold on, Jesus. I know you mean well, Yeah, you're embarrassing yourself. Just don't say that. (laughs) No, 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 no. All right. Bless your heart, Jesus. Bless your heart. Yeah. No. No. He takes Jesus aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, on God's interests, but man's. All right. He's setting his mind on earthly things, not heavenly things. Peter wants to rule. Jesus has come to rule, but in a different way in a way that reflects the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms of this earth, right? Like Jesus before before Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, don't you think my servants would take up swords to defend me, right? But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And that's where Paul goes next. Verse 20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Really interesting that he comes with this line here. Remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. It's something that they would be extremely proud of because only uh, only a few cities got the blessing of being a Roman colony where Caesar himself, who has brought you the good news uh, that Caesar reigns and he's going to save you. He's going to do all these good works in your city. He's going to transform your city to look like Rome itself. You're going to get the aqueducts. You're going to get the roads. You're going to get the statues. You're going to get the temples. You're going to get incredible funding from Rome so that whenever someone comes to Macedonia and they want to know what Rome is like, all they got to do is go to Philippi. And it's like you're in Rome itself. Like this was just incredible. So these people who lived in Philippi were very, very patriotic people and very proud, very proud of the fact that they have 
a Roman citizenship. As you would see uh, the soldier, the guard that Paul runs into in Jerusalem, that's like, I got my citizenship at a high price, right? And Paul's like, well, I was born a citizen of Rome, right? Very interesting the way he uses his citizenship, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, those couple of times. But um, Paul says, first of all, our citizenship, singular. He doesn't say our main citizenship. He doesn't say one of our citizenships. He says our citizenship, singular, is in heaven. All right? And he says, from which we eagerly wait for a savior. That would not be a good thing to say in a place like Philippi, because as we've talked about in previous um, episodes here, there's coinage out saying that Caesar is the savior of the world and that he is the Lord. And yet Paul is saying, nope, nope. We have the real savior. We have the real Lord, Jesus Christ. And we are citizens of his kingdom, which is in heaven. All right. Um, let's, let's go over real quick um, when Paul uses his citizenship. There are a couple of times I want to highlight to first in Acts 16, like we already talked about. He doesn't use his citizenship card to get himself out of a beating. But after the jailer has taken Paul and Silas back to the jailer's house. They've preached the gospel to the jailer's family. The jailer's family becomes saved. Jailer washes their wounds. He brings them back to the jail. And then the next morning, when the authorities come by to the cell to release Paul, he's like, uh, so why'd you do that to Roman citizens? And they get really, really scared mm -hmm. because it was illegal for them to give a Roman citizen a uh, beating with rods. Um, without a trial. So horrible, horrible thing that happened to them that he allowed to happen. They could have gotten out of. Then you have Paul in Jerusalem after he, he gets there and the crowd is about to tear him apart, basically. And he pulls this Roman citizenship card so that he doesn't get beaten, so that he can address the crowd and preach the gospel to the crowd. Then he uses his Roman citizenship card later to appeal to Caesar because probably he's thinking, if I can get Caesar to convert, then I've just accomplished basically what happened with Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar converted. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He sent out the good news to the whole world to worship the God, the true God of heaven. It's probably what Paul is thinking there. He wants to witness to Caesar himself. All right. Um, but let's look at some of the values of the kingdom of heaven. We've done this before. But we're we're going to do it again here. Okay. This is the main theme of Jesus's message, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. All right. Uh, you want to read this for, for us, Stephanie? Sure. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we got a couple more verses. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. So I um, want to give you an early Christian uh, quote. It's kind of a paragraph. What it looks like to have your citizenship in heaven. All right. What the early Christians said this looks like. And I've used this before. This is one of, one of my favorite early Christian quotes uh, from a letter to Diognetus, also called Methetes. This is around 125. AD, Mathetes writes, Christians live in their own countries, but only as guests and aliens. Every, every foreign country is their homeland, and every homeland is a foreign country to them. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but through their life, they surpass these laws. They love all people and are persecuted by all. Nobody knows them, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and just through this, they are brought to life. They are poor as beggars, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, and yet they have everything in abundance. They are dishonored, and yet have their glory in this very dishonor. They are insulted, and just in this way, they are vindicated. They are abused, and yet they bless. They are assaulted. And yet it is they who show respect. Doing good, they are sentenced like evildoers. When punished with death, excuse me, they rejoice in the certainty of being awakened to life. In a word, what Christians are, sorry, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. All right. That's a quote from a letter to Diognetus. Tertullian writes about this a little bit. He says, but as for you, you are a foreigner in this world, a citizen of Jerusalem, the city above. Our citizenship, the apostle says, is in heaven. So you have your own registers, your own calendar. You have nothing to do with the joys of the world. Pretty interesting there. Um, now, Paul concludes this chapter by saying our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So Paul is talking about the return of Jesus Christ and what's going to happen when Jesus returns and what's going to happen to us. And Paul also in 1 Corinthians 15 writes about the resurrection. 
And he then gives us a word of exhortation, how we should live in light of the resurrection. And so that's how we're going to close tonight. Uh, so I'm going to read this. This is from 1 Corinthians 15 and give a little exhortation on that. And then if we have any further comments, that'll be good. We'll, we'll do that. Any further questions, we'll do that. And then we'll wrap it up. All right. So this 1 Corinthians 15, starting in uh, verse 49. For just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so Paul's saying in view of this, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in, is not vain. Sorry, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. <laughs> All right. So in light of the resurrection, we are called to be immovable, steadfast, I mean, stuff's coming up against you and you do not back down. Live according to the standard by which you've attained, you know, live a life worthy of the gospel. Jesus has been revealed to us and that's how we're supposed to walk in this world as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not being alarmed in any way by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for us and abound in the work of the Lord. This work will not be in vain. This kind of suffering will not be in vain. This kind of suffering will not be wasted for those that are in Christ Jesus. Just when I catch my breath, a fire starts afresh. Soon as I lay my head, the sun comes up again. But in the valley of the shadow, you are there. And when my heart grows faint, in faith I'll take your hand. Use me, Lord, until I've 
got no more to give But oh my Lord, it's like I've got no more to give You are a shield all around You answer when I cry aloud I won't dwell in dread For you lift my head Let mercy abound My own flesh and blood A covenant betrayed How long must my heart What's permanent remains My God makes me whole And you my future safe So use me Lord Until I've got no more Oh